Everybody wants to come in. We're going to go ahead and start. Welcome to Legacy Church. We're going to sing one song here at the beginning, and then uh, we're going to hear the word preached, and then at the end, we'll do most of our worship. And that'll just give you a chance to respond um, to God's word. But um, we're glad you're here. Yeah. 
God, we are truly blessed, God, to call you Father and uh, to know you deeply. Um, God, uh, just the preaching of your word, God, is a mercy uh, that we're able to hear. And God, I pray that at this time you would soften hearts, God, and uh, give us a heart of flesh um, to be receptive of the truth uh, that's about to be preached, uh, God, and that we would not come to it with our feelings or emotions, God, but we would be conformed to the image of Christ by the preaching of your word. I pray that in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. Grab a seat. If I've not met you, by the way, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors at Legacy. I'm a preaching and teaching pastor. I'm excited about our passage today, but whoops. <laughs> no slideshow. I think that might have been a mistake. Um, but before we do that, before we get started into the text today in our book of Esther, you know, typically we'll have somebody come up and talk to you about how Christ is connecting their everyday life to um, maybe what they're learning, maybe what God is showing them. I wanted to talk a little bit about Haiti this morning. Um, today uh, is the 10th day of civil unrest in Haiti, and it's a pretty big deal for us as a church. You might not know this, but that's probably of all the nations that we have any kind of a, a touch point with. That's the one we have the deepest work with. I mean, Dr. Clint has been doing work there for many, many years. Um, Y'all probably don't know this about him, but the infant mortality rate, I mean, dropped like a rock whenever he went there and threw his full weight, time, effort, resources, and connections um, to make sure that women can have babies without dying. Um, I went there with Sean. We had a small team go last February, so about a year ago, to look at it all. And I'll be honest, uh, I've been all over the world. That was one of the places I've been to where I felt a little bit uneasy, like something could happen to me here. I mean, it could happen. Uh, it's not dangerous, but you, you kind of look behind your shoulder, you know, look over your shoulder often. Um, there is civil unrest going because the president is refusing to step down. Um, things are being set on fire, rocks are being thrown, riot police are all over. Um, in fact, the embassy has gotten everybody out of there. Not only that, missionaries are leaving by the droves, doctors are leaving as fast as they can. The missionaries that we are connected to there in Haiti, they were airlifted out yesterday. And listen, they don't ever really leave unless it is really, really necessary, but they've run out of food um, there's no power left for them to run anything. That's why hospitals are shutting down. There's just no equipment that works. It's just not even safe to be there. Um, so today is Sunday there, just like it is Sunday here. They're in our time zone right now. The church scattered is meeting in Haiti, and they've got a mess, a total and absolute mess on their hands. I felt like maybe today we could just pray for them as a church, not only as a church, but um, I'm, I am thinking that we'll probably end up being hyper-involved on the backside of this whenever the dust starts to settle. And to be honest with you, I don't know when that will be. This happens a lot at Haiti. It's a little bit like the wild, wild west. Um, so when you're in Port-au-Prince, which is kind of the, the big bustling city, this type of stuff, it, it wouldn't be shocking to see something like this happen. It does happen from time to time, but this one looks particularly bad. Um, it is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and the most crooked um, and corrupt government probably in the world, according to most lists that you can reference online. Um, but our God is big. Our God is very good. He is very in control even of this civil unrest there. So we're just going to pray and believe 
that God would work in and through his church there and that we would know how to help. So, Father, we thank you for being sweet to the people of Haiti. Lord, your church there, that you would preserve them even in times like this. Lord, where they don't even know if they're going to have food, they don't have power, they don't, there, there's no police. It, it is as medieval as things could possibly be. And, and it was bad before all of this happened. So, Father, we just ask for your grace to be on the church of God there. We know from history, we know from your Bible, that when something like this happens, the church flourishes. The church grows. There are radical salvations. Community starts to deepen. We start to see the miracle Miracles happen around people that are very desperate, very hungry, very hurting. And we, we pray today, Lord, that you would, you would send your Holy Spirit to inhabit the pastors, the staffs, the leaders of these churches. Lord, that they would rally, that they would pray, that they would calm, that they would be on your mission, even in a time like this. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us as a church know how involved, what does involved look like, where could we be helpful in something like this, especially with the connections that we already have. What, what would make sense even for legacy? So Lord, we love you and we thank you and keep this fresh on our hearts as we, as we think about it throughout the day and the weeks. Lord, we love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, listen, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Esther 6. Esther 6 is where we're going to be today. It's going to be the most helpful for us today, I think, especially in showing us who Jesus is clearly. While you're turning there, Esther 6, if you can see it, is there a way we could get the house lights just pop back on? I'm pretty old. My eyes wouldn't be able to see. There we go. That's, that's perfect. Thank you so much. You know, while you're turning there, this time a year ago, I was running out at what we call the urban wilderness. I love that place out there because you could get lost real easily. And if you just want to be alone, that's a great place just to go and be alone. And I remember because it was snowing and it was icy and there were no cars in the parking lot. So when I went out there, I knew I was going to be by myself all day. And it was freezing cold. It got really cold. I remember thinking, man, it's getting colder. I thought it'd get warmer as I would run. And I was really far from the truck. And I, I carried these, uh, what would, would amounts to like gummy bears, right? I was carrying these gummies with me that are kind of an alternative to a gel. I just wanted something to chew on while I ran. And I wasn't paying attention to how hard they were getting because of the cold air. It was turning into like taffy. And I threw one in my mouth and I chomped down on it. And what I thought was a rock was my crown. It pulled my crown right out of my mouth. And so I panicked thinking it was a rock. So I spit it into my hand and threw it on the ground. And I thought, why would they put a rock in there? Man, that's horrible, horrible quality control. And I'm looking at my tooth. And I think, that's my, that's my tooth. So I get it, and I found a little creek, and I washed, washed all the dirt off of my tooth in the, in the creek and put it in my pocket and kept running. I mean, what else are you going to do? So I ran back to the truck, and I, I, my dentist is a good friend of mine, and I got in the truck, and I speed dialed him real fast. I'm like, listen, <laughs> you're not going to believe what just happened. And I was panicked. You could hear it my voice. My cadence, my alert was on high because, it was. It, it, of course, it was the day before the holiday season right, when all the good food is out there and I'm not going to get to eat any of it. It hurts to just breathe. And it wasn't just what he said. It was how he said it that brought calm to my heart. He's like, Luke, listen, take a breath. 
It's going to be fine. That stuff happens all the time. Uh, crowns come out all the time, especially doing what you did, right? You choose something that's kind of chewy. It's going to jerk that thing right out. Don't worry about it. This is what you do. We're going to take care of it. I've got somebody booking you an appointment right now. You're going to be fine. Listen, whenever we have stuff that's broken in our life, like a tooth or a house or your finances or a computer, it's always good to have a professional show up on the scene that knows what they're doing and then just looks at you and says, listen, it's going to be fine. Take a, take a breath. I do this all the time. It's just, it's calming, even if they're lying to you. Isn't it calming? Just to know. A professional has shown up. My heart doesn't have to panic anymore. An answer is here. But what if my dentist had said, you did what? You spit it out of your mouth and put it in a creek. You did this? Oh, my gosh. Luke, you're going to have to give me a minute. This is horrible. I don't even know what to do right now. Like, I'm beside myself. Like, I hope your mouth is closed. There could be germs all over the place. I mean, had he been talking to me like that, I would have been even more panicked. Why? Because his demeanor is leading me in that moment, right? Listen, I think most of us carried something like that in here with them today. Most of us, if maybe not all of us, carried something in here with us today that's kind of teetering on the edge. Something that is broken that could be more brokener, could break even further, could be worse. Maybe it's happening right now in your life. Maybe you see it coming. But it's something that's just kind of hanging on. It could be personal, trouble with your health, trouble with your kids, trouble with your finances. Maybe it's just the State of the Union. Maybe it's a national thing. You watch the same news I watch, right? Wondering how much brokener our broken system can be. Here's the big truth that we're going to find in this passage today, I think. I think. Humanity and this is what you already know, is always in a hurry. Humanity's always in a hurry. But God is never really in a hurry. Humanity is always anxious. God is never anxious. He doesn't wring his hands. He's not busy trying to cook up a plan B or come up with a fallback plan. He doesn't lose sleep. He doesn't stare at the clock with anxiety and sweat dripping. He's never racing towards a deadline. He doesn't have to quicken his pace to catch up. He doesn't have to do that. Never panics. Doesn't have any breathing exercises he does to kind of calm himself down. To those whom God loves and those who love God, God is the one that shows up on the scene and tells us, hey, take a breath. It's going to be just fine. I'm used to taking broken pieces and seeing something beautiful come out of them. This is what I'm good at. And we need to hear that, don't we? I mean, I just talked about Haiti, how broken it is and the need that it has. But we always have news, missiles launching, cancers diagnosed, hearts broken, jobs lost, legislation passed, whatever it is. We need to hear that it's going to be okay, that there is an answer. Because I just want you to imagine, exercise an imagination for a little bit. What if God was just like us? What if his fingers were crossed just like yours? And he doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow any more than you know what's going to happen tomorrow. What if he really was not in control of seconds and moments and the hearts of kings? What if he was just anxious? How would that affect the way you worshipped him? 
how would that affect the way you prayed? I mean, what would you be asking for, really? I mean, when you think about it, he doesn't know what's going to happen and doesn't have any control to maneuver. How would it affect? How would it affect you? Now, I think most of us have a better theology than God as a panicked God or as God as a hurried God. But whenever we see pending destructions, whenever we see the Hades of the world or the Hades of our life come, don't we get amnesia and forget that for a moment? Don't we forget that? I forget that. So what I love about today's passage is that it shows that God is in control, but it really shows us, if any passage does, it shows us that God is in control on time, on time. That's going to be a key theme. In fact, you're going to see oftentimes in the Bible this phrase used. It's a unique phrase because we don't really talk like this today. In the fullness of time, it will say. You've seen it. Something happened in the fullness of time. And when you really do some research on that phrase, it's trying to build some imagery in your mind, like if time, if time could be pregnant, okay? If time could be pregnant and it was just ready, when time was ready to produce something and it was ready to go and it just did it in the fullness of time. The gospel story for you and me, and when I say the gospel story, not just that story that saves you, but that story that sustains you, the good story of God for humankind through the person of Jesus as a favor to us because we did not deserve anything like Jesus. So God's goodness to us despite us that he would come and live and die and live again, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would go to the right hand of the Father, leave us with the same Holy Spirit, build a better place for us as he is interceding at the right hand of the Father. This news that sustains you and me, it's not accidental. It's not accidental. It's a timely plan. It's why the gospel story is a good story. It progressed according to the fullness of time without being threatened, without being hurried. Think about that. After centuries of seconds that just ticked, centuries, millennia of seconds just going, the incarnation happened right on time. The incarnation of where God comes to be God-man with us, the incarnation, happened right on time. Galatians 4.4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So God patiently and calmly, he calmly waited until the right second. It buried inside of the right hour, found inside of the right day, inside of the right week, in the perfect month, in the perfect year, in the correct place, with the right people, under the right circumstances, and all of this was designed before one atom touched another atom, before the water ever crashed on a shore. Time was full and ready for that moment. It was planned. And then every day that Jesus walked this earth, he did everything in the fullness of time, perfectly. Even the hardest week, even the week where it looks like everything was taken away from him. We call it the Passion Week, right? But think about even that week. He was betrayed right on time. He was mocked in the perfect fullness of time. He was arrested correctly right on time. He died right in the fullness of time. The Holy Spirit grabbed him and he launched from a grave in the fullness of time. 
could not have been more perfect. One second later and one second earlier would have been imperfect. It was perfect what God did. You see, the gospel story has a wonderful choreography to it, doesn't it? Where everything was brilliantly considered and then brilliantly executed. And it is so well designed and so well thought and so well considered that we see a small picture of it hundreds of years earlier in the passage that we have today, right? which is an interesting passage because everything in the story of Esther seems like it's kind of, as I've been saying, circling the drain. It's headed towards disaster. But if you have eyes to see it, God is involved in every little detail, and he's doing it on time. On time. I mean, just to recap where we're at in the story, last week and this week, those chunks of the story of Esther are kind of in the pivot of the story, where things start to look a little bit less like a, a downward spiral and a little bit more like an ascension, like things are getting better. That's what it's starting to feel like, right? Esther is getting ready to reveal her identity to the king who has no clue. Haman, the villain, is about to reveal his plan to the king who also has no idea what's going on. And we find ourselves on the eve of this big day. Big day today. Esther's going to make her petition. Haman is going to make his petition. And the king has no idea what's going on. I mean, consider this for a moment. Those gallows are being built on Haman's property, and they're 75 foot tall. 75. It's obnoxious. We've already talked about how obnoxious this is. But there's weeping, bitter weeping and crying and fasting in the streets. The queen and her people are about to go through an extinction-level event, and the king knows nothing. All the king knows is that there is going to be a feast the next day, right? Typical mind of a guy. This is what a guy's thinking the day before a big feast, right? I wonder if it's going to be brisket or sausage, right? That's about as deep as his thinking is going to go. Brisket or sausage? And if, I, and, and if he was like me in, in my mind, I would be thinking, if it's brisket, I hope they put it on the smoker like two days ago. If it's today, it's too late. It's not going to taste very good, right? Two days ago. And by the way, is that, is that new football league really going to work? What is that about? And why does it smell like tacos in this room? I want a dog, right? I mean, it's just that random, and it just kind of weaves and wonders. Because that is about as panicked as you're going to find this guy. He's not panicked at all. No idea what's going on. But he's not going to sleep either. He's not going to have any sleep, not this night. Let's look at Esther. We're in chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord for us. This passage is going to show us Jesus very clearly today. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Okay, this is what's going on. It, it, there, there was no reason given for this guy's insomnia. It's not given. It, now, oftentimes when people can't sleep in the Bible, it will tell you that there's a reason. Like they had a, a real wonky dream, you know, so they woke up. We've all had those dreams. You just kind of wake up. But, but sometimes an angel wakes them up. Here, no reason. He just can't sleep. Listen, I've had hundreds of these nights. Not a hundred, hundreds of these nights. I've struggled with insomnia for decades. Some of those times where I'm up at, at 2.36 a.m., some of those times 
I totally hold the Lord responsible. <laughs> I think it's his fault. Because after taking all the melatonin and valerian root, magnesium, and all the other adaptogenic herbs or CBD oil, breathing techniques, blue light blockers, anything you name, I've done it all. I can check all the boxes and still zero sleep. None. And sometimes in those moments when I'm pacing the house, I can hear the Lord clearly. I can hear him like he's right there in the room. And it's a gift to me. It's a gift. Sometimes in those moments, God loves me so much he keeps me awake. Just to commune with him. And sure, I'm going to be tired the next day, right? But then again, being rested isn't always my goal. You know, I mean, there's it, probably a lot that could be said on sleepless nights, and it probably deserves its own sermon. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on that before, but just to get back to our, our story that we have right here, this is what we do know. This sleepless night, it's happening in the fullness of time. Consider if this happened the next night and not this night, it'd be too late. Mordecai would be dead. If it happened two nights earlier, then the feasts would have been off a whole day, and then what Esther would like to do wouldn't make nearly as much sense. But for this to happen just like it's going to happen, it needed to be this night. It had to be this night. The choreography is flawless here. And what I think is interesting is this king could have done anything to entertain himself in the middle of a sleepless night, which I, I know whenever you're sleepless, you're kind of just looking to be entertained. It's, it's, it's too early in the morning to get your brain to do anything productive, but then you also can't sleep. So you're in this nether region where YouTube makes sense, or you just watch TV, or you just kind of sit and stare at the wall, but you can't really feel like you're doing anything productive. So this guy, I want, you to, I want to remind you, he owns the world. Money is literally not an object to him. He can do anything he wants. He has a harem. He has servants all around him. If he, if he decided, you know what? I'm tired. I can't sleep. I've always wondered what it would look like if a bear and a lion fought. Let's do that. Make it happen. Someone would run off and grab a bear. Someone would get a lion. They'd stick him in a room. He'd get to watch it. He had that power. Or I want to laugh. I'm feeling humorous. Someone go wake up a comedian. Someone go wake up Kevin Hart, put him in a car, drive him over here, and, and 15 minutes later, you'd find Kevin Hart there digging sleep out of his eyes, trying to come up with a routine really fast. That's the kind of power he had. I want chocolate cake. Check that. Donuts. Chocolate cake donuts. Make it happen. They would, even if there was no such thing as donuts, they would have figured out a way to make it happen because that's the kind of power he has. So what does he do with all of this power? Listens to somebody read archived government records. If it seems weird when you read this in the Bible, that's because that's weird, right? This is not like us watching C-SPAN. This is like us watching C-SPAN from five years ago because these are old archives, old of them. Now, we get to this place where the king hears about his own assassination attempt, right? We're about to be in this place, and he decides, hey, whatever happened to this guy? Whatever happened to this guy? This guy, Mordecai, saved my life. See, that had been forgotten. And I want you to remember a very key fact in the way affairs were carried out in this era, right? If somebody was a kind informant to the king, it was natural for the king to be generous and to reward that informant. 
for very obvious reasons, because you build a culture where everyone's kind of looking out for the king, <laughs> right? It builds some motivation in the people that have their ear to the ground. That way, if the king wanted to know what's going on, and you told them, he'd just make you a millionaire just like that. Well, that would do the trick. But if word got out that you were not rewarding informants, it would build the opposite culture. So it's, it behooves this king to get on top of things fast. And it would have been up to five years since this assassination attempt. That's how much time has gone by. Being overlooked stinks, doesn't it? It stinks. Mordecai was overlooked, but hear me now, he was overlooked in perfect time. And he would be rediscovered in perfect timing. All of this is happening just the way God wants it to happen, right? These assassins, they've been dead and in the ground for several years now, but in the perfect fullness of time, this particular archive was pulled out of this file with that particular little footnote about this particular guy named Mordecai, and it would turn history on its head. And here's the spoiler. God planned all of this before he spoke light into existence. He's not in a hurry. He's not panicked at all. Look at verse 4. Let's go back into our text. Verse 4, And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Hey, just real quick, by the way, it's awfully early for anyone to be clocked in. Are you catching that? He's like, basically the king says, Hey, is anyone else here? I'd like to get this taken care of right now. This whole morning, is anyone else here? And guess who else probably didn't sleep well the night before? Big day Haman, because he was excited about the most perfect day in the world the very next day where he was going to get to kill his enemy. So he's clocking in early. There's not very many people there. That's what's happening. Okay, verse 5, and the king's young men told him Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> this guy. This guy, right? It just is cringy, isn't it, to watch this all go down? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. <laughs> right? The record needle just skips off the record right there. Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. 
Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Okay. So, this day was supposed to be a big day for Haman. The most awesomest day in his whole life, and it turned into a hell on earth real fast. I could imagine him getting a little bit weak in the knees, a little bit sick in the stomach, hearing what he was hearing, right? Because Haman did not care about money, and he did not care about power. He had plenty of both. One thing he did care about was public recognition. He wanted to be treated like a king in public, right? And now he has to treat his enemy like a king in public. See, it's not that he doesn't get to live his best day, it's that his enemy does. And he has to be a part of it the whole time. See, that's, again, use your imagination. You're allowed to do that when you read the Bible. This means that they had to work together all day. Haman and Mordecai. Working together all day. That's a tough day at work. What did they talk about? Did they talk at all? Did they even look at each other? That is awkward. This is awkward. You see, the phrase that Haman wanted to be yelled before him would now come out of his own mouth. And then after this whole hard day at work, Mordecai's just going to go right back to the gates, go right back to Tuesday, but Haman is going to rush to his house mourning with his head covered. You're supposed to see at this point in the story, you're supposed to see that things are evolving a little bit. The winds of change are happening, right? You can sense the balance of power shifting. Haman is now crying bitterly like the Jews were just a couple chapters back. Esther is becoming more of a queen and less of a naive girl, right? Mordecai is finding favor that Haman used to have. You're, start to, you're, you're starting to see that. That's meant for you to see. Also, did you happen to pick up how the counsel he was getting changed because of that very thing? I mean, he goes home, he's all mad, he's stomping his feet, and his counselors, they don't sound like they did the last time they gave him counsel. They're sounding very frank here, very theologically accurate all of a sudden. I mean, if I was Haman, I'd been like, where, where was this? Like a couple days ago, you guys were telling me to build those giant gallows out there that I just did, right? And now you're telling me this? This is my working theory on why. I think the people around Haman could see everything unpacking, just like you and I are able now to see everything kind of unpacking. I don't think they were so dense that they missed that the wind is changing a little bit and God is going to protect his people. I think it's just becoming very obvious. But he's not going to get any time to process any of this. He's not going to get any time to build any strategies because while everyone was still talking and in mid-sentence, his escort comes to carry him off to the feast, right? Which we'll talk about next week. This is a tough story. But there's great application for you and me in this. Great application. And there's a brilliant way that God shows his gospel story in this story. I mean, just for instance, I want to draw attention to the fact that one person who should be unable to sleep is asleep, and one person who should be sleeping is wide awake. Did y'all notice that? Mordecai, he should be awake. He's about to die. Of course, he doesn't know us. But 
He was sleeping while poles were being sunk in the ground across town that would use to publicly shame, humiliate, and murder him the very next day. And he's asleep, sleeping. Now, he knew that doom was coming. He just didn't know it was going to be the next day. Remember, they're all going to be killed on Passover, which was just several months away at this point. You know, when I hear this story and I read this story, I instantly think, of the image of Peter sleeping in prison. So I thought we could turn there. This is going to be an Acts, and, and it'll be up on the screen if you don't want to turn there, or if you're fast in your Bible, you can flip over to Acts. When we, when we went through the book of Acts, we spent some time on this passage. We're not going to do that much today. But in chapter 12, we see the church being persecuted. Acts 12, it says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. That's because the king was murdering people. He was killing Christians. This is happening. It's happening fast. It's, it's happening aggressively. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he had put him in prison, delivering him up over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, okay, listen, he's about to die. I mean, his death certificate is hot off the printer right now. This is happening. Real, this is real. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Okay, that's all we're going to read on that story. I've always been amazed at this story. Pretty cool that he gets out of prison. To me, much cooler that he's even asleep right? This angelic shaft of light comes in from the other world, and it doesn't wake this guy up. <laughs> the little red light on my smoke detector <laughs> wakes me up. This guy's not waking up. He is sound asleep on a floor in between other dudes that he's chained to, and he is so asleep that the angel has to kind of I'm doing this. I don't know how he did it. But if he's on the ground, I would assume this is how you strike somebody on the side. He has to strike this guy to wake him up. Peter's asleep. But he didn't have any reason to be asleep, did he? Stephen was killed. God did not save him. He's gone. James is killed. God did not save him. He is gone. Others are gone. And the church needed God to hurry in this moment. And that's the feeling you get when you read through the beginning part of the book of Acts. They're scattered all over the city. They're using secret knocks on the door. They're having to speak in whispers. That's the state of the church. But God was moving at a pace that was not hurried. It was calm. It was unfolding in this pace that was in step with the fullness of time according to his will. His will. You need to put these passages together. It shows you a clear principle. God does not need us to be present to preserve us. And he does not need us to even be awake to preserve us. We don't have to be there. Mordecai is in our passage today, but more of a prop. He's more of a passenger. He's not, not, a, not as much a primary actor in this passage. 
God doesn't even need us to be present or awake to preserve us. Not only does he move at a perfect cadence, he does not speed it up because we are nervous and panicked. And this is valuable for me because I can get really panicked. I can get really anxious. I could toss and turn while I feel like doom is just right around the corner and down the streets. And so it's helpful for me to see in a passage like this that God will take the sleeplessness of a pagan king on a specific night in a specific moment and add to it a very specific archive with a very specific footnote about a specific guy and then mix into all of that the fact that Haman was coming right around the corner at the perfect time and mix in with that their conversation all to care with Mordecai all to care for him in the fullness of time and Mordecai didn't even know that this was going on he's asleep he's asleep but this is the character of God, is it not? To do something like this, to show up to you and me and to say, hey, hey, take a breath. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I'm good at this, God says. I'm good at taking what is broken and shattered and very, very scary and breathing life into it. It's the character of God to take our chaotic hearts and invest peace into it. And the proof of this happening is not this story as much as the story that the story points to. We have a gospel story, right? A gospel story. Again, not just a story that saves us, but a story that sustains us. This is what Graham Goldsworthy, who's a brilliant scholar and teacher, he says this. He says, history is not the story of God's trial of something good that failed, thus requiring him to come up with an emergency package as an afterthought, God's ultimate creation plan was not Adam and Eve in the Eden, but Christ in the gospel. Let me translate what he means. The cross in the empty grave was a part of the divine choreography before there was light, before there was time, before the first Adam reacted with the next Adam, before there was anything, before there was a mountain or a star. The gospel of God was God's centerpiece. The story of how he would care for you and care for me is the centerpiece. And it was in the fullness of time that God would see fit to unwrap this before our very eyes. Even this story that we read today is a piece of God unwrapping the story for us in perfect time. Because let's just use their words and their story. Who really is the man that the great king delights to honor? It's Jesus. Jesus is the man that God, our great king, delights to honor. Mordecai is actually a type of Jesus in this. Right? That's just, all that means, it doesn't mean that they're the same person. It means that one is the shadow of a more accurate substance. Mordecai is a type of Jesus. When we see Mordecai kind of elevated, it is supposed to draw our attention to a Christ who was not elevated. He did not get the public adoration, did not get the public recognition. Mordecai gets royal robes. Jesus is undressed and vulnerable and shamed. Mordecai gets this royal horse, while Jesus, he is limping underneath a cross on his back. There's a royal crown put on the top of Mordecai's head before a crowd that is cheering. And Jesus has a crown of thorns placed on his head while he is scolded by the crowd. 
There's a royal announcement going before Mordecai. This is the man whom the king delights to honor. But there was a plaque above Jesus' head that mockingly said, King of the Jews. This was a great day of public honor for Mordecai, but it was a great day of public shame for Jesus. Because just as Mordecai was marched through the, the center of the city for his ultimate fame and recognition, Jesus would be hushed off to a hill outside the city limits where only criminals were done away with. Jesus is the man whom the greater king delights to honor. And in the fullness of time, he would come. In the fullness of time. And in the fullness of time, he'd find you and change your heart and call you son, call you daughter. I want you to consider that for a moment. The moment that God rescued you, the moment that that heart of stone was pulled out, the moment a heart of flesh was put in, that you looked at your hands and you knew that there was blood all over them, but then you looked at the glory of God at the same time where you had the worst news before you of what you've done and then the greatest news of what he has done. In that moment, when you trusted and you believed, that too was according to the fullness of time. I don't know if that helps you. Sometimes I think, what would have happened if I'd have gotten serious about Jesus 10 years earlier? You ever have that thought? What if, what if I became a Christian when I was in middle school instead of a senior in college, really? What would have happened? I mean, friend, listen to me. It happened right in the perfect time. A split second sooner or a split second later would not have been perfect. God saw perfectly fit to do it right when he did it. should be encouraged that he cared so much to do it in that way. So, if all of that's true, how are you and I, how are we supposed to interpret what feels like God delaying? It feels like where he's not on time. In other words, what about when his choreography feels kind of cruel and heartless? Like there's never really going to be a fullness of time for us when it comes to rescue. I mean, after all, Mordecai was forgotten for several years. <laughs> several years. I mean, you think he mumbled a little bit? I mean, come on. I would have. I would have grumbled, at least on even days, right? I would have grumbled a little bit, especially when other people are getting rewards for lesser things. I don't think I would have done very well with that. But what about you? Does God care about your feelings? Does he care about your pain, your struggles? When God delays a rescue for you and me, it is either going to be to mature the moment or to mature us, and oftentimes both. To mature us or to mature that very, very moment. I mean, I think Peter does the best job in 2 Peter 3. We'll put it up on the screen Second Peter, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, Peter says, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Makes sense for a God who's not hurried, for a God who's calm. Makes sense. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, this is concerning the last day, right? The day of the Lord. A day that's actually more pivotal than the one we're reading about today and a day that's more pivotal than the one you carried in with you. That's the, that's the stake on this passage. And so what we learn in this is slow is not what we think slow is. Slow does not equal delay. 
When we feel like God is slow, we feel like he's stalling or delaying. That's how we see slow. That's why Peter says, not slow like we think slow. Because, see, I think we carry this expectation, which is unrealistic and it's unbiblical, by the way, when we carry this expectation that says, if God really loves me, then he would do this. If God really loves me, then he'd take this away. If God really loved me, he would deliver this right on time, if God loved me. So what we do is we base his goodness on how we see time and on how we feel pain. But when we do this, we miss his hand in the very details of everyday life. Because hear me, I know your situation's got to be tough. If I lined all of you up and listened to what you carried in with you, I wouldn't even make it to the second person without being in tears. I know it. I know it's tough. But do your lungs still draw air? Did you wake up this morning? Your kidneys work? Do you have love around you, hopes, dreams? Is your brain able to formulate thoughts? Don't miss God in tiny ways, in ordinary ways. I think a lot of times this is why we can be so spiritually impoverished and emotionally impoverished. We just base God's goodness on his speed to make pain go away. And that's how we see goodness. How good is God? I don't know. How quick can he get rid of my issue? That's how good he is, right? But take your problem and bring it under this truth that God has an ultimate purpose for the fullness of time to do what it says in Ephesians 1, which is to unite all things in him. All things. So yeah, you're being matured, and so is time around you, so that at the right time and at the right place and at the right manner, God's will in his plan will unfold for his glory and for your goodness, not a second sooner and not a second later but perfectly in time. And listen, if we can find satisfaction in that, if we can find satisfaction in the goodness of God and his heart towards us, then we can sleep. We can have a still soul. We won't be in a hurry. We look a little bit more like Peter, asleep. If we cannot find satisfaction in the goodness of God, we're always going to see him as late. Tardy, and you can only enjoy a God that is not tardy. Cannot enjoy a God that has too many tardies. Can't enjoy him. And I'm not just speaking personally either and how we deal with it in our own lives, but even nationally. Just think nationally. Not a horrible time to bring that up. I mean, think about what this must have looked like when this was happening in Susa. The Starbucks in Susa on the corner of Main and Third, right? I can see somebody saying, hey, just flipping through, looking at some of my apps. It's kind of a mess out there. Have you noticed that? I mean, this countdown to destroy the, the, the Jews, there's an app for it now. Now there's an app that tells you how many days until the Jews are wiped out of the whole kingdom, all 127 provinces. But here's what I don't understand. Mordecai yesterday, like he's a Jew, right? So why, he's, he's being treated like a king. But then they're going to kill him in a few months? Our king is a moron. Like, he doesn't know what he's doing. This guy's a hot mess. He has no plan at all. He has no plan at all. I don't feel safe with him. I don't feel safe with him leading our nation. Doesn't have a solid plan. He's taking our country down the drain. He's dividing our country in half. Does this start to sound familiar? I don't know what's going to happen with him in leadership, with her in leadership, with them in leadership. 
Listen to me. God is never in a hurry. Even though mankind is, God is not. He is the hero who finds you, who finds me, and says, take a deep breath. I'm good at this. Taking things that are broken, that are making you nervous, and in the perfect time, you can listen, nothing's going to stop my will. Nothing's going to stop my plan. It unfolds exactly when I want, exactly how I want. Nothing gets in its way. That's an easier God to pray to, is it not? One that's in that level of control. This is how Jesus says it in Matthew. I'll turn to Matthew. You can stay where you're at if you want. Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen, this is rest that a sleep does not bring. This is a rest that comes from a peaceful heart. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying that we're safe with him. He is the professional that has entered the room, that speaks peace to our hurried, frantic hearts. He will take care of us. Listen, if you're a part of God's people, if you're a Christian, there is room to repent in a passage like this. If you're like me, sometimes my anxiety, my panic, what it really says, even though I'm not saying it with my mouth, is, God, you're not in control. Your timing is stupid. It really doesn't even make any sense. I've got pain and you don't care. I've got issues, you could care less. No one's in control. Everything's out of control. Nothing's happening on time. Everything is just, it's wildly out of control. That's unbelief. It's an unbelief that our God is really good enough to do something like, I don't know, empty a grave. Rescue me. Save humanity. There's room for me to repent. There's room for you to repent. If a sermon like this encourages your heart by you knowing that things are really going to be okay, that means there's a piece of you that needs to repent for just not trusting God that things are going to be okay, right? If you're here and you're searching for Jesus, maybe it's skeptically you're searching, maybe you're just searching for something, could this be the day? Could this be the day where in the fullness of time God brought you to this place to hear a story like this, that God would go through such great lengths to rescue you at his cost for your benefit. Could it be that you were here to hear that today? As the author of Hebrews says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts. Respond to what the Lord is doing in your heart today. Go ahead and stand with me. We're gonna, I'm gonna pray out of this. You know, one day, Jesus is going to lead a parade, different from the one that he did whenever he had the cross under him or over him, and different from this parade that Mordecai had today. And everyone's going to bow and confess. All knees will bow on this day. All knees will. So listen, if you're new here, you've not been here very long, what we do is is this is a time where we get to sing. Um, The worship team will come up and they'll lead us. 
just through a few songs, but we have the elements in the back. What we call the elements is just some bread and some juice where you can celebrate communion. And if you're a Christian, we really invite you into that moment. You don't have to be a member of this church to do that. We invite you to go back at any point in those songs to take it with a roommate, family member, by yourself, with the person next to you. It's totally up to you. But use that also as an opportunity not just to take some moment like that in remembrance of what God has done, but also with hope with where God is leading you to a different banquet. Also use that as an opportunity to reflect on what it is that's making your heart frantic. Where do you wish God would just hurry up? What is it that's teetering on the edge of destruction for you? It's a brilliant time for you to really work and release and trust the Lord and to find a better rest. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you. You're very good and you're very kind that you would say to us, come, come, be with me where it's easier and I will take care of you. That you would invite us to take that load. And Lord, we're so thankful for this gospel story. It's a good story, Esther's a good story. I enjoy the story of Esther only as much as it points me to the brilliant story that is the gospel. Lord, that in the perfect second, in the fullness of time, you operated in such a way to give all of us grace that we just don't deserve. Here it is today in 2019, and I'm reading the story, and I am fully, wildly amazed at the choreography that you considered before there was ever even time. And you did all of that because you loved us. That is, that is crazy. So Lord, we love you and we, when we worship you, we would just ask that your Holy Spirit would help us navigate why it is that our hearts are panicked. Why it is that we want you to hurry because we're hurried. Why it is that we, we have such a hard time with anxiety and toil. Why we have such a hard time with trusting you. Trusting that you're in control. Trusting that you love us and that your timing is a generous timing towards us. So, Lord, we love you. Ask for your Holy Spirit as we worship you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The the whole time, well, not the whole time, but that uh, Luke is preaching, I'm thinking, you know, why did God save Mordecai? Obviously, God had to save his people because if he doesn't intervene, they're going to be wiped out. But did he have to save Mordecai? And I feel like every single one of us, when we're listening to the sermon and, we, and Mordecai is saved, it's like, you know, the ending of a good movie, you know, it's happy, you know. But there's so many people throughout, um, I guess, God's story uh, that don't live. I mean, even Jesus on the cross. And um, I was thinking about this passage where Paul is writing to the Philippians, and he says, uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I can't imagine what. You know, I'm not like that, you know, where 
I'm having a hard time deciding whether or not I'm gonna, I want to die or to, to keep on living and serving Christ. And I know I want to live, but um, as we sing this song, this song is about God's grace. Um, let's not just think that God is gracious in times where he's doing what we want him to do. He's gracious always. And the mere fact that we are here and that we know him um, and we can call him father um, is the most gracious thing that he could do. Your grace, my 
same for the saint and for the sinner enough for this whole wide world your great grace such grace Separate, even if around. 